the National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas, Innovation in the Air Force, presented by Ross Mahoney. This talk was recorded on the 11th of May, 2015, at the National Archives, Kew. When I was asked to talk, it was, it was Innovation in the Royal Air Force, um, and I'll come back onto a critique of that in a moment. And actually, you'll hear me critique a lot of things over the next 40 minutes or so, because uh, in my opinion, there's a lot of things wrong with the historiography related to um, the Royal Air Force in the interwar period. Um, and so, you know, for those of you that know a little, about, a little bit about the Royal Air Force and the history of it, you might hear me say some names, and, and I might say some slightly um, unwarranted things about them and what they've written and, and what I think they've got wrong. Um, and one of the reasons I think they've got it wrong is because they've looked at the, the Royal Air Force um, from, uh, the, from the wrong lens. Uh, and so what I'm really talking about, and actually in about 40 minutes, is I'm condensing my PhD thesis um, in, into 40 minutes for you. But I've sort of looked at um, leadership development in the Royal Air Force, specifically through the lens of Air Chief Marshal Sir Trafford Lee Mallory. So, so those of you that are uh, you know, familiar will, will possibly recognise the name. Um, he's the man who decides to fight the Battle of Britain using big wings, for which he's probably given the context of his operational command right. Um, that's slightly contentious, and I've written other things about Lee Mallory in the Second World War, which has received some uh, interesting attention from people who think that I've gone crazy. Um, but you know, there, there's actually quite a lot to say about who Lee Mallory is and actually what he represents in terms of the Royal Air Force and innovation in the Air Force because he's actually in the 1920s and 1930s at the leading edge of that. He's a nurtured officer. He's, you know, he's, being, he's being developed as it goes through the systems and he's the type of officer that the Royal Air Force wants. And you know, for those of you that might have looked at, um, sort of looked at files relating to the development of um, tactical air power or air power at the tactical level of war, we often assume in the 1920s and 30s that the one person associated that with that is a, a gentleman called Sir John Slessor, um, whose personal papers are held here at the, at the um, National Archives. Unfortunately, Sir John Slessor, when he writes um, his, his memoirs in ni- the 19, uh, 1950s, um, sort of forgets his old chum, um, Lee Mallory, uh, and suggests that Air Power and Armies, which he publishes in 1936, um, is all his own work, when actually a lot of it stems from the writings that Lee Mallory has done earlier on. Um, so we start to see some of this coming through, and uh, I'll, I'll come back to a little bit of that in a minute. Sort of what I'm going to talk about, um, there are sort of two elements. I'm, I'm going to briefly talk about military aviation in the Royal Air Force, uh, primarily because I think, um, as I say, we, we look at innovation in the Royal Air Force through the wrong lens. Uh, I'll come back to it in a second, but essentially we look at it through the airfix school of history um, rather than actually um, the human element of war, which was much more appropriate to the Royal Air Force in this period. Uh, the other innovation aspect I'll, I'll touch upon um, and I'll come back to in terms of sources um, is the methodology I used to look at Lee Mallory and his peers. Um, essentially, I used um, prosopography um, as a methodology to examine Lee Mallory's uh, rise to senior leadership and how that worked. And then I'll link that to um, contemporary leadership theory. Uh, for, for, my, for my sins, I'm also a social scientist. Um, I have a great deal of interest in, say, military culture, but um, some of the sociological literature that underpins that and how that relates to, to leadership theory. So I'll talk a little bit about leader versus leadership development and what that means and how, how that fits into the RAF. Um, I'll then touch upon the RAF's culture. Again, something that's really not been very well defined by historians. Um, who, who, who like to talk about the RAF having a distinct culture but have never really grappled with what it means and what it is and the ideas that underpinned it. Um, I'll then move on to talk about the General Duties Branch. Um, for those of you that have looked through the Air Force list, 
Um, if you if you certainly in the interwar period, it's essentially the RAF is, RAF is split into one major branch, the general duties branch, and then a series of sub-branches or, or professional branches, such as the stores branch and the medical branch, um, but primarily the general duties branch is, is where all of the officers who reach senior leadership come from. Um, I'll then talk a little bit about pre-service background, um, principally the role of public schools. Again, the historiography seems tends to suggest that you know, the RAF is innovative in, t- in terms of how it manages its personnel because it's far more egalitarian than its army and naval counterparts. Um, that's a lot of hogwash. Um, uh, the RAF is just as wedded to the public school ideal um, as the army is and recruits just as much from that, that, that view um, as, as anything else. Uh, so I'll come back to that slightly in a minute. I'll then talk about military education, um, principally the RAF Staff College at Andover. And again, I'll challenge some of the um, assertions that have been written about the Staff College, principally the fact that it's been looked in terms of doctrine rather than leadership development, and talk a little bit about operational experience. And then underpinning all of this, the promotion system. Because in 1928, um, C.G. Colbrook, who was the Times Aviation correspondent, uh, wrote that the RAF had an ingenious solution to the problem of um, promotion by um, marrying up merit and seniority. And you know, this is a little bit of an issue. The question is, how, you know, how meritocratic can you be if you're promoting by seniority? And how does the RAF seek, you know, seek to challenge that? And actually, some of the problems it has um, as it goes through its problem of career management, um, the RAF thinks it can do things that um, the Army and Navy don't do because it thinks it's better than them, but actually makes a really big mistake in 1923, which I'll come back to in a bit. Um, the one thing I won't really talk about um, is training. Principal reason I won't talk about it is because the officers that I looked at in terms of um, my, my PhD came through a, a very complex and disparate training system. Um, so um, I'll come back to it in a minute, but essentially I looked at the career of just under 400 officers and mapped their careers through the interwar period. The problem is, is that these officers were roughly split, split between pre-war regulars uh, and those who entered through the amateur routes um, and wartime exigencies for the army. And it's very difficult to assess the effectiveness of training on leadership development and the value that had for the RAF, which obviously comes after the First World War, and its role. It's not to say that training isn't important. It's just that I didn't really come along to touch on it. And there is some some work to be done there, especially in terms of Cranwell. But it's it's something that I've sort of left out a little bit. There's a military innovation in the Royal Air Force. Historians tend to talk about innovation, but actually in the military sphere, we talk about military transformation and we split that into innovation and adaptation. Innovation is a a peacetime process versus adaptation is a wartime process. Uh, What is to do with long lead times and and, the types of developments that are going in, innovations are are, are a slightly higher level um, process related to revolutions in warfare, uh, whereas adaptation is dealing with changes in tactics and technology and responding to operational needs. Of course, the big thing with, with the RAF, it, it, it's a new service in 1918. It is innovative. It comes around in 1917 as a response to the bombing of Britain um, and, and the need to manage the, um, the underpinning processes needed to run an air force. Um, you know, the air force, it's, you know, it's not a case of chicken and the egg. The air force comes out of the fact that neither the, Royal, uh, neither the British Army nor the Royal Navy can effectively manage um, its air power requirements. They can't, neither of them can talk to each other about what they're going to build, how they might work together, and the sort of um, lead times that might come in. So, so essentially what happens is there are a few processes before 1917 that sort of fail, things such as the Curzon Air Board. But in 1917, when the, the Gotha raids are launched against Britain, um, 
we see the emergence of the Smuts Committee and the two reports that are, uh, are actually authored by the Director General of Military Aeronautics, Lieutenant General Sir David Henderson, um, but are named after uh, Jan Christian Smuts, who essentially in his second report makes the argument that we need an independent air service um, to manage the, these processes. The irony with all of this, with this innovation, is that the Royal Navy is fully behind this idea in 1917. Um, Beatty at the Grand Fleet and Jellicoe at the Admiralty um, can't wait to get rid of the Royal Naval Air Service. They're really keen to see the problems it's facing fobbed off to someone else. The irony is, of course, is that in the, in the 1920s, they will consistently argue to have um, the fleet air arm, as it essentially is, returned to them. Uh, and that, that problem, and, and, and the major issues, and I'll come back to this in a moment when I talk about RF culture, is that the RF um, have a, the idea of command of the air, and for them it's a conceptual term, it's a doctrinal term, it's about achieving air superiority. For the Navy and the Army, it's about ownership. It's about who gets the big slice of the defence budget. They want the money. They're actually not bothered about the aircraft. I haven't been convinced by any naval historian yet who has suggested that if they had the Air Force returned to the Navy in the 1920s, they'd have done a better job um, than the Royal Air Force, because I'm convinced that all they would have done is they'd have put the money into big gun battleships rather than aircraft carriers, air defence, and such like. This is not to say that the Royal Naval Air Service in the First World War is not innovative in itself. It does quite a lot of useful things, strategic bombing being the principal one, um, but doctrinally it lags behind the Royal Flying Corps but one of the problems in terms of military innovation literature as it relates to the Royal Air Force in the interwar period is that it primarily focuses on two aspects. As I've mentioned, it already fo it focuses on what I refer to as the Airfix School of History, the kit. Um, one of the key innovations being the emergence of radar and the aerial defence network and, and eventually the emergence of low-wing monoplane fighters such as the Supermarine Spitfire and the Hurricane. Um, and also doctrinal development. We have a copy there of um, the Royal Air Force's war manual, this is the second edition from 1940. First edition comes out in 1928 and is derived from a document called CD22, um, the RF's operations manual that comes out in 1922. It's heavily based on the British Army's field service regulations. Um, and interestingly, the copy held by the National Archives is currently missing. But we, the historians tend to talk quite a lot about doctrine and talk about how the RAF is quite innovative. It comes up with uh, its own um, mode of operation. It comes up with a capstone doctrine, you know, a strategic level idea about how the RAF will work. It, unfortunately, it tends to be associated with strategic bombing, which is a bit of a misnomer. The RAF is talking about a lot more um, besides in, the, in this period. Um, but you know, the historians tend to criticise and say, you know, the RAF is, you know, is, is about strategic bombing. When actually, there's a degree of reality to that. I mean, technologically, in the 1920s. Um, if we assume, if we, if we consider a comparison of fighters versus bombers, bomber aircraft in the 1920s are just as fast and fly higher than fighters. So it is not an, it's not an unreasonable assumption by um, the military to, to, to assume that you know, the bomber will get through and it will be the offensive weapon. Um, but the RAF is thinking about more, more aside. The problem I have with all this is that it misses one big, um, big, big thing out of the equation, and that's the human. Um, the RAF's historiography can be divided into works on personnel, policy, and doctrine, with policy and doctrine really dominating the field. I mentioned H uh, Earlier I mentioned H. Montgomery Hyde um, uh, and works by people like Scott Robertson and Tammy Davis Biddle in terms of uh, policy and doctrine. And then you know, we, we see other works by people like David Amisi. The, the problem is, is that you know, the, 
the work on the human element of the RAF is, is sadly missing in this period. There is some good work in terms of the first, Second World War. There's some really bad work, in, in my opinion, in terms of the First World War. There's a recent book published on air and sea power in the First World War. Unfortunately, in my opinion, the author doesn't really get what she's looking at, but that's uh, you know, a, a discussion we can have later. In the interwar period, the, the human element is largely missing, apart from a work by a, a, an RAF psychologist by the name of John James, who wrote a book called The Paladins, A Social History of the RAF. The, the problem, again, with his is there's lots of assumptions in his work. Um, I'll come back and talk about how I've used the Air Force list in my work. But John James used it, he took some statistics from it, and then never uses it again. And uses it again. There's sort of this problem with his source analysis and how he uses uh, certain elements of, of, of the Air Force list to prove his assumptions rather than actually using it in a rigorous manner and of course the problem with all of this is that um, if you look at the literature on um, the generation of fighting power or how militaries you know produce um, the ways ways means and ends of conducting military operations it's split between the physical conceptual um, and moral components so the physical and conceptual components are the technology and the doctrine and the thinking behind war and the moral consequences um, moral element is about the yeah, morale motivation and leadership of course the problem with all of this is that it takes leaders to develop policy and doctrine so people have, haven't looked at the question within the question in terms of military innovation they haven't looked at the culture and um, you know, the, the, the development of the people who are responsible for developing and writing documents such as the RAF war manual so that's sort of what I've, I've sort of started to look at in terms of innovation is sort of turning the question on its head and looking at how we might conceptualize innovation from the human perspective, which actually from the, from, in the context of the interwar period is how the RAF thought. The RAF is a moral force. It's, it's not about technology. It's not about doctrine to a large degree, even though it conceptualizes doctrine uh, much more readily than the Army or the Navy. Um, if you read the RAF War Manual... Um, and it's clearly based on things such as FSR, very much grounded in the moral element of warfare. It talks about success in war being more dependent on the moral aspect than the physical aspect. Good leaders are those that win wars. That's essentially the story of innovation in this period. So how do I go about looking at some of that? Well, this is in terms of the innovation, in terms of the methodology. And as I say, I use prosopography, um, or shorthand collective biography, um, to examine um, Lee Mallory's development, but also the development of his peers throughout the interwar period. And the sort of p- point of it was to look at, well, the, the question within the question in terms of Lee Mallory was, well, why does an officer with so many perceived detractors reach senior leadership positions? If what we believe in some of the historiography related to the Second World War related to Lee Mallory is true, uh, for example, the late Vincent Orange wrote that he was, you know, he was either misguided or incompetent, or at worst, both. Um, you know, if that is true, then there's something clearly very wrong with the system that develops him. Um, and ha- what implications does that have for the RAF more widely as an organisation, but also in terms of how you know, it's being innovative in the way it's managing its personnel? In terms of what prosopography is, I mean, it, it's quite simply you know, a, a, an inquiry into the common characteristics of a group of historical actors by means of a collective study of their lives. And I have to admit, I've got the two... Um, citations the wrong way around um, the top one is Lawrence Stone and the bottom one is uh, Flynn, Gideon and Cohen uh, I'm looking at that and going why is the communist bit in the wrong place um, but essentially you tend to see prosopography used by ancient and medieval historians uh, and that's where it sort of stems from 
Uh, more recently, it's been used by um, political historians looking at uh, qualitative elements of the social backgrounds of the political elites. It's a very rare thing to find used in military history. Um, it's, it's something that military historians, perhaps shy of methodology, um, willing to engage with. And there are a couple of exceptions to the rule, principally historians related to the First World War more recently have started to use it. Um, and as far as I'm aware, in terms of the history of air power, I'm, I'm the only historian to have considered this as a, as a methodology. And the purpose of it was to try and you know, map the career of not just Lee Mallory, but as I say, his, his peers. So I'm, uh, the exact figure is 386 of his peers from 1918. Um, that's split between um, approximately 286, uh, 280 or so squadron commanders in March 1918. Uh, the rest are wing commanders um, taken from the Army list and the Navy list. Um, so I'm able to compare those that are Royal Naval Air Service and, and Royal Flying Corps and where they go in terms of staying in the Royal Air Force in the interwar period, what they do, what they don't do, what are the patterns that emerge and you know what does it say about the culture of the RAF and how it seeks to develop the officers, its officer class um, as it goes through the interwar period. What are the mores that emerge um, as we seek to understand the characteristics that make up these, these men? Um, and you know there, there were some quite interesting patterns that emerged some of them, actually, to be fair, um, not that unsurprising, in my opinion. I mentioned earlier public schools, and I will come back to it in a second. I was not that shocked that the RAF principally sought to recruit um, public school boys. Um, there's a very good reason for that, which, again, I'll come back to in a second. But, you know, it wasn't something that, 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 that shocked me. Um, and, actually, if you look at the balance ticket that emerged with officers, likely Mallory, um, people like Edgy, people like the future marshal of the Royal Air Force, the Viscount Portal, Tedder, um, Sir Arthur Harris, or Bomber Harris, um, you know, Keith, well, actually Keith Park actually falls out of my, my work. I don't look at Park primarily because he's a flight lieutenant in 1918 um, when I start and therefore he falls out of, out of the uh, pattern. Um, but other notable names, the, ba- uh, the Babington Brothers, uh, Bow Hill, Joubert uh, de la Fête and, and so forth. And what do these men do and how do they interface with the system which they work within and how do they perceive themselves as being professionals um, and it's quite clear that they think of themselves as professionals you know the RAF quickly develops a professional identity um, as it seeks to defend its independence from from the other services and so prosopography allows for that ability to look at those disjunctions uh, and then can you know combine with the contemporary um, leadership methodology uh, methodology and theory, you know, actually understand some of the processes that, that, that actually underpin their development, things such as socialization and action, action learning, um, and primarily collegiate nurturing by the Royal Air Force. Leader versus leadership development, I mean, to, put, to put it simply, the, the d- difference in, in the, the, the leadership works, the difference between leader and leadership development is, is one is focused on the individual, the other is focused on the organization. So leader development is about developing skills. It's about developing your capabilities as an individual um, and is very much something that, that delivers something for you but doesn't anyone else. Leadership development is the opposite. It's about organizations. It's about producing organizational social capital for um, you know, the institution that you work in. So for, the, for, for people like Lee Mallory and Ted or in Portal, it's do they go through processes that have um, a, a tangible benefit for the RAF in the long term and this also links to ideas such as succession planning. You know, does the RAF recognise in the 1920s that it is planning for the future, that it's not just planning for the here and now, 
but it is you know it is thinking 10 15 years ahead um, when people like Trenchard Edward Ellington the Salmon brothers and so forth have all retired and you know you've got to you've got to see the next chief of the air staff emerge from this group um, one of the problems there is that that process has been terribly historicized um, by um, Trenchard's biographer Andrew Boyle who simply names um, Ted S. Slesser and Portal as officers that have been nurtured by Trenchard and apparently um, their names marked out in a copy of the Air Force list. Unfortunately, they don't, um, Boyle never tells you where this copy of the Air Force list is um, and having had the conversation with the current Lord Trenchard, he has no idea where it is either. So, um, you know, is this a case of Trenchard in the 1950s just before his di- he dies saying to Boyle, um, yeah, Tedder, Slesser, and um, Portal, I nurtured them, I took them under my wing. The problem with that is that these are the first three non-pre-First World War officers that go on to be chief of the air staff. So they're fairly obvious names to pick pick out of a hat. If he'd used slightly more obtuse names, not necessarily even obtuse names, but names like um, Sholto Douglas, Lee Mallory, uh, and the such like, and said, yeah, I nurtured these guys. You could probably take it with a little bit more of a pinch of salt, but I'm never quite sure whether or not he's true. But what the RAF does, or one of the problems the RAF faces, is, is actually how does it nurture these, these, these officers? The RAF don't get modern conceptions of leadership development. Things such, and, and for those of you that might have gone through it, you might shudder when I say it, um, 360-degree feedback processes or multi-rater feedback um, these are typical leadership development tools in the modern world. Um, this clearly doesn't exist in the interwar period, especially in the military. Even to this day, the military are very um, icky about it. And you do see a little bit of, of it on it. It's been introduced in uh, strategic leadership courses in the British military, but only to a limited degree. And of course, the problem is, is that it requires feedback from lots of different peers, not just your superiors, but also your subordinates. Um, and giving your subordinates the opportunity to critique you is a very, very dangerous thing if not done very carefully. Uh, and this doesn't exist at all in the interwar period. Other processes such as uh, mentoring uh, don't, don't exist, again, simply because it's a one-to-one process that would have been very, very alien to the interwar Royal Air Force. The closest we come to it um, is, as I say, nurturing. Uh, and what I mean by nurturing is something done by the organisation. What Trenchard does very well is he creates the institutions that nurture his officer class, that lead to succession planning. And I'll come back to the military education stuff in a little bit, um, because that's what they're using. They're using um, institutions such as the RAF Staff College and Andover to collegially nurture a group of officers that will then go on to run the Royal Air Force. And we see other elements of this in terms of um, the Imperial Defence College, involvement in, uh, in things such as the Royal United Services Institution. Um, and then in terms of experience, you see this sort of balanced ticket of um, squadron command, um, directing staff, um, work at um, various training establishments, staff appointments, working as staff duties, uh, and things like this. And this all l- l- relates to Lee Mallory. As I say, training is non-existent in terms of this. Uh, and it's in terms of leadership development, it still is, even when you get things like Cromwell. The adv- the th- but, the, but the one thing about Cromwell that you do see is that it provides the basis for the rest of this to happen. 
And so we have a couple of other bits on there, things like socialization. So working with, him, with peers who are those people that might be able to nurture your f- future career. And then we can associate patronage with that, but not in a sort of nefarious way. And certainly not in a long-term way. There's no evidence that Trenchard continues to exert an influence on promotion post-late uh, 1929 when he steps down as CAS. Um, job assignments, so you know, relevant job assignments where you learn responsibilities. So again, a lot of this re- revolves around operational postings. Um, and actually learning the idea that you're given a task to come up with some sort of um, element at the end of it. And a lot of this is uh, linked to experiential learning at institutions such as the RAF Staff College. And you can look at these processes within the methodology that I use in terms of prosopography. So how are these group of officers um, engaging with these um, with the, the, these leadership development processes in the interwar years. Of course, the big thing underpinning all of this um, is the RAF's culture. Um, again, the problem here is that um, historians talk about the RAF having a culture to having an ethos, but no one's really ever defined it. Um, Martin Francis, who wrote a book called The Flyer, which is a sort of a social history of the RAF's interaction with broader British culture during the Second World War. Um, sort of talks about um, the ethos of the flyer, but really goes no further in this and sort of just leaves it standing there. He says there's a flying ethos or there's a pilot ethos, but that's really all he gets to. Um, no one's really trying to define what the RAF's culture is, is at this point. But you know, if you look at the literature on military culture, which parallels border cultural history in itself, you know, talking about the common behaviours of any group. And these are underpinned by assumptions, beliefs and values. And I've sort of gone away and, and defined some of these in an attempt to sort of push the literature a little bit forward um, because they are the ideas that you see in the literature produced by the RAF at the time and sort of the stories and artefacts that these officers integrate with during this period. And they immerse themselves in it. And by immersing themselves in it, they make themselves visible for future development and future promotion. So, for example, we see a basic belief in command of the air. Now, you know, as a cultural term, you know, this is what these officers believe in, but it has a doctrinal element. You know, the RAF or the Royal Flying Corps very early on conceptualizes the idea of control of the air, the importance of air superiority. And this emerges, continues to emerge in the interwar period. But, you know, these are, you, you can take this a little bit more culturally uh, in terms of a little bit more broader in terms of culture and suggest that there is this element of officers buying into um, the command of the air, buying into the, the, the belief in flying and the importance of flying. And this, as I mentioned in a moment, comes out in, in the RAF's organisational structure, the general duties branch. It's also underpinned by the assumption of independence. Now, it, uh, the independence is really an assumption because it's never been proven. The problem the Royal Air Force faces in the interwar period is that it's given an independent role at the end of the First World War, but really never developed any imperial like, empirical evidence to suggest that an independent air force is worth its weight in gold. Um, you know, the problem is is that the independent force, when it's created, rather than bombing Germany, spends its time bombing railheads. So, you know, the, the opportunity to develop some empirical evidence never really emerges. Um, and, you know, the Royal, Royal Air Force, as it is operating on the Western Front, is essentially still part of the army. So, you know, you have this idea, this, this sort of, you know, this assumption underpinned by some technological beliefs in bombers and so forth, that independence is there they haven't had the opportunity to prove it. And so there's a continuing battle to ensure independence. These are one of the ongoing debates and internecine debates with the Royal Navy when they, 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 they seek to um, question the independence of the Royal Air Force. 
In terms of leadership, this is all underpinned by the value of the Air Force spirit, probably with the exception of um, the second, um, second Smuts Report, probably the most important document in the history of the Royal Air Force. It's something called the Permanent Organisation of the Royal Air Force. It's presented to Parliament in December 19, uh, 1919. It's a command paper. Um, and it's presented by Churchill at the time, Secretary of State for War and Air. It's written, when I say written, written in inverted commas by Trenchard. Uh, Trenchard never writes anything. He has a bunch of what he calls his English merchants to do his, do his writing. Um, some of the recollections and how he does that are quite interesting. Um, but what he writes in this is he, he's making the case for an independent Air Force. One of the things he gets right compared to his predecessor, Sir Frederick Sykes, um, in terms of innovating for the RAF, is he, is he ar- argues for the human element of the Royal Air Force. He basically says, we can get on as an Air Force without lots of squadrons. The problem Sykes makes is he, he asks for 156 squadrons, um, which is clearly not going to happen as, they are, as the military is de- um, decreasing in size in 1919. What Trenchard says instead is, you know, we'll have a few squadrons, we'll dot them around the empire, but what I'll do is I'll develop the human element of the RAF. I will think strategically in terms of developing officers who can operate and take up positions as, as we go down the line. And, of course, there are three um, key institutions that emerge from that. The first is the Holt and Apprentice Scheme uh, and the Boy Mechanics, uh, which in itself is often perceived as being an egalitarian innovation in the RAF, but actually it's more related to 19th century concepts of paternalism and responsibility in the upper, middle and upper classes who are looking after, looking after the lower classes. Um, it's sometimes suggested there's an innovation because some of these Holton boys go on to become officers. Um, but when it's limited to about three of them every, every year being promoted to officers out of, an, out of a, um, 200 people joining, it's not that egalitarian. Um, but nevertheless, it is what, what some RF historians have tended to suggest. The other one is, is, of course, the formation of the Royal Air Force um, College at Cranwell, the Cadet College. And this is really important to the RAF because it allows them um, to develop its own permanent officers. And, of course, the, the, the thing with cadet institutions is it, it's, it's the place where cultural re- regeneration takes place. It's the place where you as a civilian goes, you know, you go in one end, you go through the meat grinder, and out the other end pops this officer, you know, pops this gentleman. Um, and you know, and what happens at the end of it is you talk Air Force, or in theory you talk Air Force, and that's really important as the RAF seeks to develop um, its future leadership. The other thing linked to that is the formation of the RAF Staff College. Um, Trenchard realizes very early on that if he's to have an Air Force and if he's to have an independent air staff, he needs a staff college. He needs a group of officers trained in the language of the Royal Air Force in order to innovate and lead the Air Force um, into the future. And all of this comes out in the RAF's culture. And more broadly, I mean, I think if we to define RAF culture, it's one of efficiency. The, the, the real strategic level idea underpinning um, RAF culture is the idea that air power can do things more efficiently than the other services. And this is not unusual. This is a development in the British way in warfare. British way in warfare suggests that um, Britain historically has fought campaigns in the most efficiently manner possible. So sometimes that has been fighting campaigns in terms of um, in terms of the navy, and then also the continental commitment. And indeed, you know, the war in the Western Front in the First World War, despite you know some of the later historiographical views of it, was perceived by by many in the higher command as the most efficient means of conducting military operations in the First World War. It was the quickest way to defeat Germany, and that idea of efficiency comes out in RAF culture. And of course, all of this is codified into the RAF's ethos. And the RAF's ethos is one of the pilot. And the reason it is one of the pilots is because of the general duties branch. 
general duties branch officially doesn't become known as the general duties branch in terms of how it's listed in the Air Force list until 1923. Um, but the idea behind it um, and the gradation list that is essentially the general duties branch from 1919 uh, is there. And probably the most important thing is, is this report, the Committee on Preliminary Education of Candidates Royal Air Force Commissions. Um, it's a committee chaired by Lord Hugh Cecil. It has a Royal Flying Corps officer on it, it has a Royal Naval Air Service officer on it. Uh, and apart from um, suggesting that the RAF should not follow the Royal Navy's system of um, recruitment, um, i.e. recruiting at 13, and that it should take public school boys, its most important thing is that it suggests that every officer in the air, every officer in the air force should learn to fly. Every officer is going to be a pilot, not just an observer, not just a navigator. They can specialise in that later. You have to be a pilot, and you know this gets recorded in their annual confidential report. It comes out eventually in 1929. Um, in AP 1334, but is in Air Ministry Weekly Orders from 1919 onwards. The idea that an officer in the General Duties Branch will consistently, you know, will be a pilot, they will regularly fly. They have to do it as part of their professional identity. The problem with this is that it generates a certain type of officer in the RAF. Um, it promotes heroic leadership. The RAF don't really, or RAF officers of the General Duties Branch don't really like doing administration. Uh, to the point that in 1939 there is a, a report written on administration in the RAF which essentially says we should not be bothering officers of the general duties branch with administration. So what do they do? The RAF in 1940 creates an administrative branch, basically creates a branch of secretaries to do the work that these officers don't want to do. Uh, and this is a problem throughout this period. Uh, and the general duties branch encapsulates the RAF's culture and ethos. It is all about flying. It is all about pilots. It's not quite about brill cream, boys, but nevertheless, the, the start of that idea is there. And these are the offices that the RAF nurtures. The RAF becomes a very elite organisation. Firstly, it's quite a small organisation up until about 1933-34 when expansion starts. Um, the RAF goes from 291,000 offices in um, October 1918 to about 30,000 in about 1922. So actually smaller than the current RAF. I know that's quite hard to believe, but you know it is smaller than the current Royal Air Force. It probably has more aircraft, but that's a different discussion entirely, um, partly because aircraft in the period didn't cost what they cost a day. But these general duty branch officers become the source of recruitment for senior leaders. So I talked about earlier, I mentioned earlier there's something called the stores branch. The stores branch is where all the logisticians and, and eventually engineers and people like that are, the people that actually maintain the Air Force. Um, but they are precluded from the leadership development opportunities that these guys in the general duties branch um, are able to do. For example, um, the RAF Staff College, okay, I'll come back to it in a second, first stores branch officer does not enter the RAF Staff College at Andover until 1930, some eight years after it's opened. And essentially, it's only, they're only eventually allowed in because there's a realisation by the RAF, actually, maybe we should do. Uh, and this is really interesting given the fact that Trenchard in 1919 makes quite a lot of the fact that you know, the RAF will be a Galantarian, technical specialisation will not be a bar on promotion. The reality is, is that actually it does. 
if you specialize as um, so as, as a general duties branch officer you will uh, go on you will you become a pilot and then you'll have the opportunity to specialize in something something maybe navigation maybe engineering the RAF is quite good at sending officers off to university principally Cambridge to go learn engineering because it needs it but you go do that you essentially put a bar on bar on your your um, service um, you sort of stop at a certain, certain rank um, of the 43 officers in the, the prosopography population that I looked at um, who uh, have reached air rank so are one star officers above so air commodore um, upwards who are still serving in March 1939 uh, only 1% of that 43 has a specialisation uh, uh, Sir Roderick Hill um, who is an engineer um, he has aeronautical background uh, and that actually emerges from actually his pre-service background as much as anything else. Uh, the rest of them are all staff officers. The RAF merges its command and staff officers who are pilots. And this all comes out in the general duties branch. Just to step back a moment, um, this is um, pre-service background. So this is actually for the 43 officers who get to senior officers. So obviously one of the patterns I was looking at in terms of trying to understand how innovative the Irish um, career management system was, uh, was, well, what are, the, what are the similarities evident in those 43 officers that hold air rank in 1939? Um, and the quite startling statistic is you know, 79% of them are public school boys. That's higher, well, that's probably, well, that's higher for similar calculations for major generals in the British Army in 1939. Um, it's also far higher than the Royal Navy, but that's slightly distorted by the fact that Royal Naval officers enter Britannia at age 13. But it also perhaps misses the point that HMS Britannia, which consists of Britannia, uh, used to be the whole of Dartmouth, um, and HMS Osborne, which is um, the, the, the initial college that opened in 1902 on the Isle of Wight, and eventually condemned because it caused a lot of illness. Though, interestingly, the Royal Navy tried to sell it off to the Royal Air Force as an alternative to Cranwell. Um, quite why they were doing that, I'm not sure, but um, I think they knew there was something wrong. Is actually the fact that uh, Britannia and Osborne were essentially the Royal Navy's public school. I mean, it copied what public schools were doing. And again, you've got some figures. Um, it's about 6% of the officers came from either grammar schools or uh, secondary schools. And again, this is one of the issues within the historiography, uh, not just of the Royal Air Force, but the British Army, the Royal Navy, um, education history to some degree in general uh, of the early 20th century and the late 19th century, uh, sort of misses the point that grammar schools and secondary schools all copy what public schools are doing. If we take the example of prefects, the 1944 Fleming report makes quite a lot, quite a big deal of the fact that prefects from the public schools are a really good idea and that all secondary schools should be doing this. The problem is, is that we tend to look at um, education through a teleological lens and we look at the rejection of classical education from about the 1960s onwards um, and suggest that public schools are moribund and, and actually aren't um, you know, moving along and aren't innovative. And there is a degree of truth in that. The public school system faces a lot of problems in terms of um, a, um, a scientific education. But it sort of misses the point that that's not what they're for. They're there to develop civic leaders. And in that respect, they do quite a good job. And also the argument has been linked um, to a large degree to economic history and the idea of British industrial decline post-1870. 
And again, the problem with that is that the the, the assumption is that the, the, these are schools for the elite, but actually what we think is the elite in late, late 19th century, early 20th century is much broader and very different to what, um, what we previously assumed. And so again, the idea of the RAF being innovative, it's all perfectly well and fine, but of course the problem is is that it's culturally constrained by the fact that who they want to recruit from is quite a small part of society. And even when it's not, even when they are in the 1930s starting to get more grammar school boys, partly because there are only so many public school boys that you can recruit, and you can't go around and gang, you know, gang press them into service, you know, those grammar school boys are copying what's going on at public schools, you know, things like sport and so forth. Probably the most interesting report to come out of it, and the one I found... Um, before I started working at the Royal Air Force Museum, actually, um, is in the papers of um, Air Chief Marshal Sir Claude um, Stretham Evil, probably the best name for an air- airman in the world, Evil, though it is spelled with two L's, is a report from when he was Assistant Commandant at Cranwell in 1931-32, when he analyses the intake into Cranwell qualitatively, not quantitatively, and tries to suggest the best, you know, who are the best sort of recruits to become officers. He grades the schools into three lists. The first two um, gradation lists essentially follow the, the patterns of the Clarendon Commission schools and the schools that make up the, um, the Headmasters Conference, which governs um, public schools at the end of the 19th century. And despite the fact that he criticises public school boys um, for being bad at technological, subject, te- technological subjects, mathematics, he still suggests that Public school boys are the best recruits for the Royal Air Force. Well, how can that be? You are saying these guys are not very good at the technical stuff. Surely that's quite important to a technical service. Yes, but the RAF's view is that you can teach technical leadership. You can teach technical knowledge. You know, you can give someone a textbook and go, go away and read it. You can't teach leadership. You can't teach the concept. You can't teach the moral elements of war. You can't you know you can reinforce good leadership but it has to come from the public schools it has to come at a younger age it has to come through things such as sport so again sort of you know this idea of innovation that's why in the title it's question mark you know how innovative is the RF well it is yes but to a point you know it is still recruiting from this sort of area the next sort of step for all these guys or for an elite element of these men um, is attendance in military education courses in the RAF, and primarily this starts off with the RAF Staff College. Uh, and again, me criticising most of the historiography on the RAF Staff College tends to follow um, a doctrinal view, tends to suggest that the Royal Air Force Staff College is really important in uh, the development of RAF doctrine. There's a degree of truth in that. The first course is um, very involved with the editing of CD22, and AP1300 is regularly read. But actually, that's not the purpose of the RAF Staff College. The purpose of the RAF Staff College is to develop the future leadership capability and nurture and provide succession planning for future officers of the Royal Air Force. And, you know, you, you see it. Yeah, Brooke Popham, who is the first commandant of the Staff College in 1922, um, says, you know, from the start, it was emphasised that our job must be not only to produce good staff officers, but also to lay the foundations for those who, who could become commanders in the future. There is an element of, you know, we've got a here and now. These guys are go, going to go on and be staff officers. But actually, in 10, 15 years' time, they are probably, some of these men are going to be the senior leaders of the Royal Air Force. Therefore, we must prepare them for that. We must nurture their ability. And in terms of the importance of officers emanating from the Staff College, um, by 1931, it's becoming quite explicit. 
Um, so again, if you look in the Air Force list uh, after officers' names, and same in the Naval list and, and the Army list, a series of post-nominal letters. Um, in terms of passing Staff College at Andover, you see the letters PSA. Um, and you know, the Director of Organization and Staff Duties writes to the Commandant saying, you know, it is from amongst the officers awarded PSA that the Air Council will eventually look to find their higher commanders and it is improbable that an officer will ever reach a position of high command who is incapable of carrying out normal staff work. So this really important cultural symbol, you know, becomes a gateway to future command. But even earlier than that, the ability to get onto the staff course acts as a gateway. You know, if you're able to pass the examination, which is introduced from the third course onwards, you know, and you get onto the course, you are likely to succeed. That's not entirely the case, and it's something that where there's a big contrast between military education in this period and professional military education today, is that certainly in um, in the case of the RAF Staff College, the commandants are not unwilling to withhold this important symbol. So you know, there really is quite an impetus. And there is a lot going on at the Staff College, but you know, the RAF Staff College is the start of a, a process. So the next step for a nurtured officer, if he is lucky enough, is to attend, attend the Imperial Defence College, which is opened in 1927, which really does exist to teach officers and educate officers in the strategic level of warfare. So they really are being um, nurtured and prepared for senior leadership roles, where they're not only operating within their own service silo, but also working with the Army, the Navy, um, the civil service, politicians, members of the Empire, the, the Dominions. You see Dominion officers coming to, to the, the IDC as well. And so it's part of a, a leadership development process. And, of course, this is one of the problems with the literature on the staff colleges. It tends to, tends to stop at staff college, it tends to ignore what comes afterwards, and, and some officers go on to, to that. I mean, the statistic is, is of the first four courses at the RAF Staff College, of 80 officers on that course, 57 of them will go on to hold air rank in the Second World War. They're going to hold senior leadership positions of two-star and above, so air vice marshal and above. Of those 57 officers, 23 will go on to the Imperial Defence College and go on to hold positions of influence. We're talking about people like Lee Mallory. We're talking about people like Portal, Tedder, um, uh, uh, Douglas and, and Joubert, people who will essentially go on and lead the Royal Air Force in the Second World War and you know, be really responsible for the victories that, that occur. People like Park and so forth. Slessor doesn't go, but that's partly because he's, uh, he's busy doing other things, but will eventually go on to be commandant of the Imperial Defence College post-Second World War. So military education is really the nexus. And this is something, despite some of the cultural constraints, despite the issue of the public schools, where actually the RAF is quite innovative. It recognises really early on the importance of staff education to the point where, yes, supporting the idea of the Imperial Defence College helps defend RAF independence, but it also ensures that you know the RAF is nurturing future officers and Trenchard is really keen to support the Imperial Defence College. Also underpinning some of this for a very um, small minority of officers um, is, is independent military education, for lack of a better description. So writing journal articles, um, being involved in the professional activities of the Royal United Services Institute. In this respect, there's still a degree of anti-intellectualism with the RAF um, of um, uh, 1,052 articles published in the Journal of the Royal United Services Institute. About 15% are directed at air power subjects. Um, of those, only 7% are written by RAF officers. The rest are written by Army, Navy officers and independent analysts. Um, so uh, some RAF officers don't really want to integrate with that sort of degree of intellectualism. Um, there is a degree of control by Trenchard. 
Um, but actually, the Air Council more generally do recognise the importance of um, working within within the system. Um, and some officers, like Lee Mallory, right, um, are also known by people like Basil Ludoha and um, and JFC Fuller. JFC Fuller actually uses um, um, Lee Mallory's report on tank cooperation in his book on the tanks in the Great War and thanks him for it. Um, Lidl Hart commissions both Douglas and Lee Mallory to write for the 14th edition of the uh, Encyclopedia Britannica. So these guys are getting out there and writing stuff, but it is very much limited to, to a small proportion of officers. Those officers do tend to go on to hold quite senior senior positions, though. So you know the RAF is developing a degree of intellectual capability. So in this respect, the RAF is being quite innovative. The other element to all of this, and something quite readily recognised by leadership writing in this period, is that um, as much as you can educate, as much as you can train someone, it's all for nothing if they don't convert it into operational experience. Uh, and that is something that is perceived to be something that comes from the individual. Um, the individual has to take what they're being taught and translate it into into lesson, lessons learned. Again, the problem with the prosopography population I look at um, is that some of their, well, a lot of their operational experience comes long before they ever do any of the military education stuff, i.e. during the First World War. And this graph is just an indication of the rate of sorties flown by Lee Mallory's squadron, number 8 squadron, during 1918. Um, with quite clear spikes for the... Um, um, the March offensive, the Ludendorff offensive, um, Germany launches in March 1918, um, and also towards the end of the year during the Hundred Days campaign, uh, and sort of the you know variety of things that these squadrons are doing. You know, this is the point at which these guys are converting um, leadership mores into fighting power at the tactical level of war and learning their trade, you know, and understanding the importance of command, which will come out in promotion promotion processes. And you see a huge variety of types of missions going on here, contact patrols, counterattack patrols. For Lee Mallory's squadron, um, tank contact patrols, because it's, that's the specialist operation that is involved in at this time. And actually one of the things with Lee Mallory is that you see a, a mid-ranking officer quite clearly involved in adaptation on the Western Front. And uh, you know, a, a top-down and, and horizontal sort of adaptation is going on for, for, the, RF, for the Royal Flying Corps, and Lee Mallory is leading that. Um, communication with tanks or cooperation with tanks is a very difficult thing, uh, but Lee Mallory starts to try and solve that problem and becomes a army co- a cooperation specialist later on in, in um, the course of the interwar years. And you know the sort of idea that the RAF only promotes those interested in strategic bombing is clearly not the, not the case. If you look at an officer like Lee Mallory or contemporaries like Ernest Gossage and Owen Boyd, men who specialise in um, army cooperation. They go on to hold senior positions. The RAF is not so wedded to strategic bombing doctrine, this so-called innovation that it's leading forward, that it ignores its other operations in war. And Lee Mallory throughout the 1920s is closely associated with um, army cooperation. And the reason he's so good at it, and one of the reasons he's nurtured, is because he is able to translate strategic capstone concepts within the RAF because he's been nurtured, because he's gone through the education processes and translate them into the, the operational sphere and work with people from other services, which is of real importance to both himself and the RAF, as the RAF seeks to maintain independence. The other element to all of this, except for um, command, is staff work. These officers have to do staff work. They have to do the, the process of being staff officers. Um, it gives them that balanced ticket. They're able to understand and, and translate commander's intent. And in this respect, one of the advantages, one of the innovations of having a general duties branch is unlike being wedded to a regimental system whereby you are promoted in and out of the regiment and you only get promoted based on the seniority if the next bloke up um, is promoted. 
is that the general duties branch can see you posted in and out of squadrons um, and you can go do anything else because you can move horizontally as well as vertically. There's no sort of um, you know, no, 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 no high bound to, to the system. So, you know, again, the sort of idea that you know, the RAF has a squadron identity is not really there because it's, squadrons are not like regiments. I mean, for, for a start there, you know, a quarter of the size, you know, a squadron is about 150 to 200 men and officers. You know, it's not a battalion, it's not a regiment, and therefore they're not wedded to it. The general duties branch allows officers to do a triumvirate of training and staff duties and operational positions. Uh, quickly, the promotion system. The thing that really underpins all of this, as I mentioned earlier, the RAF supposedly promotes by merit. Um, one of the reasons is, is because the officers um, who lead the RAF in the early post-war period, people like Trenchard, um, have gone through the armies and the navies seniority-based systems and have some real issues with them. Um, and most of them, with a couple of uh, specific examples, um, most of whom are in you know, a are upper-class landed gentry and therefore are seeking to maintain class proclivities. Um, most of these guys want to get rid of the seniority-based system. And so the RAF develops a system whereby it seeks to promote based on meritocracy. Problem with that, or the two problems with that, one is it, how it defines merit. It defines it qualitatively. You know, Merit is the, is the ability of doing things well. Well, that's, that's a useful definition. How are we going to measure? I mean, in modern systems, we use things like 360-degree feedback, but this doesn't happen. What they use is something called the annual, is the annual confidential report. Um, it's produced. It's a very stovepipe document. Um, it goes, you know, from wing, com- yeah, wing commanders, squadron commanders, wing commander to group commander to AOCs and officer commanders. And the only time an officer sees it is if it's a bad report. And even then, they don't get to do anything about it they just get to see it and sign it off and say, well, I've seen this report, what's next? Um, that doesn't always mean that it's a bad thing. Um, for example, Air Chief Marshal Hollinghurst, in, uh, as a squadron leader in 1934, questions a bad report on him, is told off by the Air Ministry for questioning um, what's really a minor um, comment on his annual confidential report. Um, you would think that would hold him back, but he goes on to hold four-star ranks, so you know, maybe he was overreacting at the time. But, you know, the RAF is not seeking to measure how it does it. It probably doesn't want to do it, doesn't feel it needs to do it, thinks the qualitative method works. The other problem is is that it doesn't really have the means of managing careers. The Army and the Navy both have something called the um, Naval and Military Secretaries, who, in theory, act to manage career development. And the RAF have an Air Secretary in 1919, suddenly in 1923 decide to get rid of the position. It's held its last incumbent, a guy called Edgar Lovelace Hewitt, goes on to command Bomber Command in the Second World War, uh, and they get rid of it. The, the decision is, well, we don't need it. We think we can do better. Problem is, is in 1956, there's a report written by the Director of Postings, uh, Director of Personnel, sorry, Air Commodore Glenn, which basically says that for most of the interwar period and up to 1944, the RAF has been managing careers of its officers on an, officers on an ad hoc basis, and that the Department of the Air Member of Personnel is clearly overloaded. In 1957, the RAF decided to re-establish the position of Air Secretary, which still exists to this day. So, you know, the RAF has a promotion system that manages or promotes on merit up to a point. Uh, in the 1930s, expansion means that they have to introduce things such as time promotion. Um, but again, the problem is you know, that they don't really know how they're managing it. So, again, we go from an innovation talking about military education to the system that's underpinning it, 
you know, the actual physical reward for doing well at these things, sort of not quite being there properly. Having said that, officers who engage with processes like military education and the balance ticket of operation operational postings, people like Lee Mallory, people like Portal and Tedder, uh, people like Courtney, all tend to get promoted much quicker than... So a few concluding thoughts. Um, firstly, I think... Um, the literature on military innovation in the interwar period, and certainly relating to the RAF, and I suspect also relating to the Royal Navy and the British Army, needs to take much more consideration of the human element of war, simply because that is how the militaries of the period thought about it. Um, that yes, they had lots of big, nice big toys, the RAF lots of nice aircraft, the Navy, when they had the money, could afford nice big battleships, um, and the Army, when they could get around to deciding what they wanted to do, had nice tanks um, or had their horses. Um, but you know, it was about the human element of war that they thought about, and I, I think I think the literature needs to go back to that to think about how the officers that innovate were developed and the challenges that they were faced by that. The RAF clearly thought it was being quite innovative, and in general does a very good job. It does leadership development. It develops its officers broadly um, and provides a process of succession planning. The RAF is thinking about. You know, future development, but it is constrained by issues such as culture. You know, until 1930, it's limited to general duties branch officers, and even post 1930, stores branch officers and the such like struggle to enter the military elite. They are predominantly public school boys. The RAF continues to argue that public schools of boys are the best types of recruits, um, but they do show innovation in other ways. You know, our understanding of the military education system used by the RAF is. is is still quite misunderstood and I think we need to go back and look at that and understand actually how it provided the basis for a, for a group of officers who I would argue in terms of the RAF were far better qualified and far better educated than their army or naval counterparts um, and indeed to the point that Portal is one of the chiefs of staff you know Churchill describes him as the best of his chiefs of staff compared to Allenbrook and even Cunningham the RAF do a very good job of developing its officers and innovating but there are still challenges, there are still problems. And unless we understand those problems, we can't really understand how an, a military organisation innovates within the context of you know, it, its human element. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.